Hi, everybody, and welcome to Unified, a podcast feed from First Church Belmont Unitarian Universalist. We'll be sharing sermons and stories, especially thematic content made new every week. We're so glad you're here, and for more information about who we are and opportunities to grow and deepen, swing by the church on Sundays or check out our website at uubelmont.org. And for now, enjoy this new content. And this is an old Irish story, uh, which I have always loved telling around this time of year. Here you go, buddy. Or you can sit there. Feel free to sit on all that stuff. That's all my stuff. Wonderful. And it starts, once upon a time, there was a boy, a little bit older than you guys, but not that much older. And he loved more than anything in the world going to visit his grandma for a couple reasons. One is she lived right on the ocean. And then another is that they would cook together. They would cook beautiful, delicious soups. And he remembered so clearly the smell of her house because she would get the onions and the garlic and the leek going before she got, he got there. And so it was that he was very excited this one day to go and visit his grandmother, extra excited because he knew that she was very sick. And he knew probably that she was going to die, but nobody really close to her yet had died. He had one pet who died a very long time ago, but it was almost too early for him to remember. So the idea of his grandma dying was bigger than anything he could think of. So he was excited to go see her. And it was that he would take the longer way to go visit her across this beautiful beach that they would go down to and play in and build huge sandcastles. And he was walking up to her house, very excited for the smell and the soup and to see his grandma, when all of a sudden he saw floating really slowly on the sand on the same path a tall, black, kind of robe figure. And as he got closer, he could see that it didn't have any feet reaching down, and it was just floating, and he thought it might be death, and he was a little scared. But also, getting close to it seemed like sort of a jolly version of death and not so scary, and it turned around, and sure enough, it leaned in and said, Do you know where Barbara Button's house is. And that was his grandma's name. And so he thought, I'm about to outsmart death. And he said, way down at the other end of the beach, which is not true. They were like two houses away from her house. And sure enough, death kept going all the way down the beach. And the little boy ran into his grandma's house and it smelled exactly right. And she came forward to him and she scooped him up in her arms and she gave him the most amazing, beautiful hug. And he just melted into her hug. And she said, I'm so excited. I have an errand for you. I need you to run into town and get the chicken for the soup. And the boy said, all right, but there's one thing I have to do first. And he took the list, he put it in his pocket and he ran outside and he looked around the beach and he found this huge shell. And he ran up, holding the shell, ran up behind Death, jumped up, and shoved the shell over Death's head. And Death was a little bit surprised, but he kept squeezing and squeezing and squeezing and shoving Death all the way inside the shell and then grabbed a rock and squished the rock into the shell. And he was holding this big shell with Death inside. 
And he was like, ooh, I didn't think through the next steps. And so he just threw the shell into the ocean. And he said, maybe this is going to work. This is great. And so he took out the list and he went into town. And there was a bit of a commotion around the butcher's shop. When he came up to the butcher's shop, he said, I'd like one chicken, please. And the butcher's like, I'm going to do my best. And he took the chicken, he put him on the block, and he took up a big hatchet. And he brought the hatchet down over the chicken's head, and the head flew off. And then, shroop, sucked right back onto the chicken. And the chicken looked up at the butcher and smiled, a big chicken smile, saying, I don't think this is your day, butcher friend. And the butcher tried again, and shrunk, and the head plopped up and then sucked right back on. And the chicken tried to do a little chicken dance, and she went, the boy thought, maybe this is because of what I did. But he ran home, and he got back to his grandmother's house, and he said, they were out of chickens. Let's have a vegetable soup this time. And she said, great, go pick some carrots from the garden. These were the best carrots he ever ate. He loved his grandmother's carrots, and he went outside, picked them up out of the ground, and tried walking back into the kitchen and they were pulling him back, the carrots were, and it was all of his strength trying to pull the carrots, and then finally couldn't hold on anymore, and he let go, and they went right back into the ground. And he knew that he had done something wrong, and he went in, and his grandma could tell, because they were really close, and she could just tell from his face, and so she brought out this huge... You couldn't even call it a cup. It was more like a bowl-sized cup of hot chocolate with just this impossibly huge grandma-sized mound of whipped cream on top that could only be served at grandma's house because it's not a healthy portion anywhere else. <laughs> and she put it in front of him, and he just buried his face in the whipped cream and came up for air, and he told her the whole story. And she reached out her hand super gently. And she said, oh, sweetie, it's going to be okay. She said, I love you so much. And I will be with you forever. And death is a part of life. And you get to swim out into the freezing cold ocean and find that shell. And he did. And it was very cold. And he swam down and he found the shell and he brought it back up to the land and he pried out the rock. And sure enough, with a big whoosh, death came up out of the shell and stretched creaky, creaky, bony arms. And he said, oh, that was refreshing. I haven't had a break in thousands of years. He said, I'll give you a week. And he floated away. And the boy had the best week with his grandma. They made their soups, and they told their stories, and they played their games. And eventually, he left to go home, knowing that sometime, who knows when, that death would come and visit his grandma. And he did. And from then on, she was with him in so many ways. Every time he made that same soup with that same recipe and that same smell filled the house, he remembered her and her hugs, and she was there with him. And this is one of the reasons we do this service every year.
one of the reasons we remember people who have gone, pets, all sorts of folks who have gone, because they're with us this day and always. This tiny little object that I'm holding in my hand is a blue-gray pearl. And I brought it to symbolize my father. So why a blue pearl? Because my father was many things, and one of those things was an inventor. He invented the corn-based glaze that's used on M&Ms, but I thought if I'd bring M&Ms, they would be gone after the first service, so I went in a different direction. <laughs> so I brought this blue pearl instead, because my father also developed a process to dye regular white pearls, where the dye doesn't just sit on the surface, but actually reacts with the volume of the pearl to create with this beautiful effect. And the company that he did this for gave him a huge five-pound sack, like a sack of flour, of pearls. And this sack of pearls was always around. And, and one of the things my dad loved the most was to take some of those pearls for special occasions, graduations, special milestones, and get them set for the women in his life. All of us have and had pearl pendants, I'm wearing one, bracelets, earrings, I'm wearing those, or even strings of them. We lost my father this past Valentine's Day to Alzheimer's disease. And before that awful disease robbed him of who he was, he had been a survivor of two wars who lived through two huge upheavals of his life as a result. One time settling in France with my mom where I was born and then again in the United States as a result of being on the run. He was charismatic yet quiet, the quintessential middle child, always the peacemaker, but with a reputation for doing crazy things like swimming across the river Tisza in Hungary under the ice in winter. Uh, this river is about twice the width of the Charles there, just to calibrate you. He was hilarious, always making people laugh, sometimes in three languages at the same time. But the thing I remember the most at this moment was his ability to make me believe in myself. One time, when I was maybe five years old, he brought home a little microscope. And it was not a toy. It was an actual microscope from his workplace. And I got all excited looking at bugs and crystals and all kinds of things. And I announced to him with great conviction that I thought I wanted to be a lab technician when I grew up. And uh, now this was the 1970s, so women in science weren't really a thing back then. Yet my dad's reply was very matter-of-fact. He just looked at me quizzically and said, why would you limit yourself like that? Why, you should be the one running the lab. And it really struck me at the time, and obviously I still remember it, and it's something I never really forgot because I'm now that little girl running the lab. My sister Susan and I are remembering our father, Jack Cobb, who died last June. The object I've chosen is his copy of the Odyssey, translated by Robert Fitzgerald. It was his favorite book. He read it many, many times, as well as many other translations, and even spent time translating it himself from the ancient Greek. 
My father loved being, our father loved being a father. When I and my three siblings were young, he spent all of his free time with us and had a wonderful instinct about what would be fun for us at whatever ages we were. He also loved to read. And to satisfy both those loves at once, he invented an ingenious children's game, the reading contest. It consisted of he and his children sitting together on comfortable chairs at home, each with a book. The winner was the one who could stay that way, reading peacefully for the longest. (laughs) He usually won, but there were prizes for second, third, fourth, and fifth place as well. I'm going to read from the final lines of his favorite book, because it's the ending, and because it contains a message of peace, which our Father would be advocating for as strongly as anyone at this moment and always. Now hold, she cried, break off this bitter skirmish, end your bloodshed, Ithacans, and make peace. Their faces paled with dread before Athena, and swords dropped from their hands unnerved to lie strewing the ground at the great voice of the goddess. Those from the town turned fleeing for their lives, but with a cry to freeze their hearts and ruffling like an eagle on the pounce, the Lord Odysseus reared himself to follow, at which the son of Kronos dropped a thunderbolt smoking at his daughter's feet. Athena cast a gray glance at her friend and said, Son of Laertes and the gods of old, Odysseus, master of landways and seaways, command yourself, call off this battle now, or Zeus, who views the wide world, may be angry. He yielded to her, and his heart was glad. Both parties later swore to terms of peace set by their arbiter, Athena, daughter of Zeus, who bears the storm cloud as a shield though still she kept the form and voice of mentor. I'm Susan, and I have two objects here uh, which remind me of the qualities I love most about our father, his love of art and his lifelong enthusiasm for creatively pursuing what he enjoyed with a beginner's mind. One is a photo that was taken when he was 10, creating a plein air painting at his family's summer home in Maine. Um, The other is a painting Jack made 70 years later in an apple orchard on the same island in Maine. In the intervening years, Jack's artistic aspirations (coughs) had mostly remained dormant until my sister Priscilla bought him a painting class for his 70th birthday. Retired with a bit more time on his hands, his artistic talents blossomed over a 20-year period. His retirement years were his most creative and pleasurable, and he mastered the art of acrylic landscapes as his father had done with watercolor in his retirement. Growing up with pictures and paintings of our grandfathers on the walls, 
I was always struck by what a good artist he had become in his old, as I saw it, age, and learned to see him as a late bloomer. That thought always thrilled me, especially as I got older and remained hopeful that I still had time to pursue some of my own artistic aspirations. Dad reiterated that example of it never being too late to do what you love and even become good at it. Now I have his paintings. Now his paintings are on my walls of familiar, beloved places in our family history, painted with a sensibility and beauty uniquely his, a part of him inhabiting where I live and inspiring me toward the creative life. My grandfather gave me his love of telling stories. He passed away on September 26th, the day before his 93rd birthday. He passed along his love of telling stories. But I have nothing of his physically that I can put on our beautiful altar. So instead, I have something here to represent the stories and relationship he gifted me. There was one story in particular that he loved to tell. Without fail, he told it every single time I saw him and multiple times if we changed company that we were in. I can't say exactly why this story was so important that it needed to be told every time, but nevertheless, for him it was. So here is our story. When I was young, my grandpa came down to stay with me and my family as we were going through a rough time. His job was to keep me busy and do fun things. And on one of these adventures, we ended up at a McDonald's drive through for lunch. This was a pretty exciting lunch option for young me. So I'm sitting in my car seat in the back, and he's waiting to pull up to the order window. And he asks me, what do you want to drink? Immediately, I respond, soda. As he told it, he immediately regretted asking. <laughs> so he began to backpedal. Oh, you know what, Sophia? I actually think your mom would prefer if we just had water with lunch. I went silent. <laughs> he used to say it was like I was deciding whether this truly was an acceptable outcome. And then quietly, and with what sounded to him as great restraint, I told him, well, okay, but only because you're my grandpa. See, it wasn't a particularly exciting story. <laughs> Yet it reflects so much of what I appreciate in him, a reminder of the beauty found in simply being with one another. And that is something I will forever miss. For our altar, I offer this can of soda, <laughs> or as he would say, pop, in his Midwestern ways. This can of pop 
and a picture of us. Good morning. Silver lining of COVID, this is the last picture of my father. I was able to spend the last month of my life with him, hearing all the stories and all of his growing up and a lot of things that he was remembering throughout the time. Uh, it was taken two days prior to him passing. It just reflects the joy he took in life. Now, my father grew up in a tenement house to Irish Catholic immigrants, first year here. Uh, he, went, he always wanted better lives for his sons and himself. He served in the Army, and because of that, he was able to take advantage of the GI Bill and got his civil engineering degree. Then all of a sudden, he was married, had three kids, and decided to go to law school at night with three elementary kids. You know how that had the house be quiet sometimes. So through all that, my father became a lawyer, and when he did, he did pro bono work at a Hispanic neighborhood. He'd often bring home tamales, arroz de pollo, and a whole bunch of other food. When he came home, we'd sit out on the front stoop, and he would tell us stories about the people that he helped and how it reminded him of growing up and his parents' struggles and his struggles uh, with all of the ideas of being in a tenement house and being Irish Catholic. Um, he taught my brothers and myself the importance of treating every person with equality, and it made us better people. He held this high standard for us, and he always extolled our honors, but only to us. He never talked about it to everyone, but he was very proud of what we did always treating everyone as an equal. Now my father's best quality was that he cared for other people and he loved to take joy in the simple things in life. I always picture him stopping to grab a dog, to pet it on a bench, leaning over to tell a most inappropriate joke to a friend or neighbor, and just taking the simple joys. Now the, the thing that I remember about him with the grandkids and everybody, we had just been touring Boston and everything and we were at Bunker Hill Monument. He was tired. He said, I'm just going to sit down and lay down. So he sat down, laid on the bench. We all went up Bunker Hill, and he was playing his fife, little metal fife on the bench. We come down, and he's, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. He shows us his head. Look, I made $4. <laughs> he was so excited. We were dying laughing. And then there was my mother. Lots of different thoughts going on there about... Should you be doing this? But then we went through all the North End, him playing his fife, and all the kids and all us going along. It's always the simple things that uh, made life special. When he died, going through his stuff, we found a little quote um, from Cardinal Cushing, who was the cardinal in Chicago at the time, that he carried with him everywhere. We found, I think, about 30 or 40 of these in his handwriting, and I'd like to share it with you because it says a lot about what my, who my father was. A great deal of talent is lost in the world for want of a little courage. Every day sends through the graves obscure men whom timidity prevented from making a first effort, who if they could have been induced to begin would in all probability have gone to great lengths in their careers. The fact is that to do anything in the world worth doing we must not stand back, shivering and thinking of the cold and danger, but jump in, scramble through as well as we can. Thanks for making me jump. When my own father died almost 20 years ago, I was so grateful for Judaism. 
This is in part because I was in seminary and had a friend who was becoming a rabbi as I was training to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. And I could feel the limitations of somehow how we do our grieving. There was the usual flurry of our memorial service and in my father's case, cleaning out his apartment in an assisted living facility a 20-story tower in the Bronx with hundreds and hundreds of people squeezed into this tiny building. They had yard sales, as they called them. So my brother and I took everything we wanted out of the house. We put up a sign, and then hundreds of people descended like locusts and picked the place clean. It was the most fascinating thing I've ever been a part of. And I had an inkling of it because weeks before I had seen strange little figurines arrive every time I visited my father, knowing at the end of his life he didn't stray far from this apartment building. Slightly broken fishermen with only one hand, and I would say, where did you get a yard sale? Right up the street. Fully, these figurines probably have migrated up and down the store of this building and will for many, many decades to come. It was a beautiful tradition, and I got to hear so many stories over and over about how my father had touched all of his neighbors' lives, how much they missed him, too. It was lovely, but a month later, and two months later, and four months later, I was alone with my grief in a different way. The rest of the world, as it should, had moved on, but I would feel him, feel the lack of him over and over when I was married, when we had our first child, knowing he would never hold them, that they would never know him. And this is the genius one of the many beautiful things of Judaism that I encountered in that first year. For those of you who don't know, there's something called the Mourner's Kaddish. And in this very Berkeley, reform, ultra-reform, super-California version of Judaism that I encountered, every time I came to pray with them, that year after my father died, I was invited to rise alongside everyone else who had lost someone that year. And we prayed together, some just days after a loved one's death, some like me, many months, and then a year. And so this is one of the reasons I love returning to this service. And I will add one final picture to our altar. This is the other reason. I love returning to this service. This is a little girl named Rowan. Rowan was the age of my daughter, Aaliyah, who is now eight. And when she was three years old, one morning, she just didn't wake up. The family still has no idea what happened. It's very mysterious. She had a brother just two years older than her, a beautiful, wonderful family, and an incredible smile that I commend for you to come and check out on the altar. And it was among the most beautiful things that I've ever witnessed. Year after year, 
her little brother, long after everybody had moved on and was living their lives, her young brother and his family coming forward, bringing a picture of her and being held in this abundant love holding us all right now as they remembered, as they grieved. <laughs> 